Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn in them to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. We'll be in the vicinity of verses 5 through 8. Great grace from God again to us to be able to have and own and read and gather and study together this great revelation. If you're visiting, we're walking through the book of Colossians each Sunday, taking a few lines or thoughts and studying them intently. And so just a warning that you are jumping into a fire hydrant that is running full blast, uh, but trust that this portion will uh, speak powerfully to you. And I want to remind all of us who have been walking through this that we cannot, cannot and must not leave behind what we've already seen in Colossians. And I would specify particularly 112 through 215, where we see so many beautiful glories of Christ unpacked. We can't simply leave those behind in our memory or put them in a box and in a storage unit in our hearts and pull them out occasionally or on Sunday mornings when we get reminded we have to bring those glories. We have to carry them with us every step, day after day, because they encourage us. They motivate us. They guide us. They strengthen us. They're doing transforming work in us, maturing us, and enabling us to do these commands in Colossians 3 that otherwise would be utterly impossible. David Garland again reminds us, it is one thing to assent or agree to the facts that Christ gave his life for us and was raised by God. However, it is quite another thing for that truth to permeate, good word, permeate our whole lives so that it controls, good word, all that we think and do. Consequently, the doctrine about what God has accomplished for us in Christ must be engraved, good word, on our minds so that it continually inspires and sustains, good phrase, our lives. Now, if you either haven't been with us the last couple of Sundays as we've turned the corner, starting with Colossians 3, 5 and the commands of God, as we enter into this section that will run through 4, 6 and 35 to 40 commands, God has begun a complete renovation of our souls, and though he has done much already in our salvation, complete and sufficient for our salvation, he is still doing an ongoing sanctifying work. And verses 9 and 10 particularly capture, in a short phrase, that two-pronged process of what has been done by Christ and what needs to continue to be done in Christ. And that starts with putting to death the old self, the earthly things that yet remain in us and in our hearts that dishonor God because Christ died to bring those to nothing, to death. God has given us, as verse 10 tells us, new desires and a new self that are so good. We're gonna see more of those unpacked in the coming weeks. But those will not grow and thrive as they could and should if corrupt, deceitful desires of our old self continue to poison us and are allowed to actively 
dwell within us yet. So similar to the pulling of the weeds, some of us don't do that. We just hope that the vegetables will grow or the fruit will grow and it'll turn out all right. But all of us know that if we rid the garden of the harmful things, that the, those things meant to thrive and grow will bear even more fruit. So it starts with death. It starts with the pulling of those weeds. And God goes after particularly either damaging sins or we might think particularly critical enemies of Christ and the cross. Number one, God commands those in Christ to put to death all idolatry. It's the final thing in verse five, but I think is an encompassing thing of all of them. Sinclair Ferguson says, this is the poison of having other gods. They not only take priority over the heavenly father, but they also create an inner antipathy to him. Anything that tends to obscure our clear vision of God day in and day out must come under a ban. So we last week reminded ourselves of the first commandment that is overarching for our whole lives, continually being guarded that there are no other gods before or competing with God. The two masters of Luke 16 that Jesus warned about. And then the apostle John closed his letter. Last words of this whole powerful letter of 1 John are, keep yourselves from idols. And in the middle of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 verse 14, Paul also calls us to flee from idolatry. God is in essence telling us, I shall not be one of your gods. You are not simply adding me to the other gods or idols of your life. Even if those are good things that I have created, they are not to be the supreme thing, and certainly no sin is to be something that you continue to give yourself to. Secondly, God requires that those in Christ put to death all sexual immorality. There's a lot of words on the screen uh, tried to highlight certain ones in stronger colors. But 1 Corinthians 6 calls us to flee, to run from sexual immorality in any and every form that it may come to us, reminding us or teaching us that we're bringing together in sexual immorality two enemies that must not be anywhere near each other. One of those must go entirely out of our lives. And there are lots of reasons why sexual sins are particularly heinous sins but here God puts forth that the most wicked thing of all is that you who are one with Christ whom Christ has made one with you who are temples meant for worshiping and glorifying him are never to unite any part of you body soul mind to any sexual perversion and so in 1 Timothy 4, Paul reiterates some of the th same things. Now with the command, abstain, completely cut yourself off from anything and everything that would be sexually immoral and pure in any way. And he notes particularly in this passage that sexual sins transgress and wrong other people in the image of God. And then in Proverbs, which we didn't have time for last week, just a couple of Closing highlights from that, Proverbs 6.32 says that anyone who commits adultery or acts out on their sinful sexual lusts in any way is stupid. That's, it says lack sense, but it's stupid. It's dumb. 
It's one of the dumbest things we can do, and here's why. You're actually destroying yourself with that pleasure. And then the very end of Proverbs 7, after two and a half chapters, 60-some verses, uh, teaching us tremendously about the dangers of sexual immorality, he closes with, turn aside, don't stray into those paths in any way, for many a victim, literally billions, she has laid low, she has cut their knees off, and all her slain are a mighty throng, unbelievable numbers. Her house, any way in which we enter into sexual sin, is the way to Sheol, the place of the dead, going down to the chambers of death. That's the last word that God speaks on sexual immorality in Proverbs. So to summarize, we might say that the worth of Christ in us and with us from 1 Corinthians 6, the worth of other humans, which this sin, sexual sins, wrong and victimize from 1 Thessalonians 4, and the worth of our own souls from Proverbs are three huge reasons to put them to death for they are wrecking everything in the image of God. Have you ever seen something you really, really were enamored with? From a piece of clothing to shoes, we all have our things, right? To cars. Man, it's a beautiful thing. And you oogle and awe over it. Perhaps touch it. Pick it up. And then you see a price tag. And immediately, immediately, it's gone. Like the desire for it. I want it, but I will never pay that for it. That's God's message here. He wants us to say, any indulgence, as intensely pleasurable as it may be in a given moment, has a price tag to it that is unbelievably costly more than any of us recognizes or realizes. So the spirit is, I will never, never pay that. Look at the price tag. You may or may not ever get to enjoy human bodily sexual pleasure. Or you may have it as God's designed in marriage for a season. But many of you will never, and you will be fine. You will be utterly fine. Whatever your situation, kill this sin or it will kill you. I just want to commend to you two things. The Sunday school class that's going down in the new basement the next two Sundays, uh, yet where we're continuing to think about the biblical framework for sex, sexuality, and our bodies, but also just to urge you that this sin thrives in secrecy. tempts you strongly toward it, and it feels itself on that. So bring it out in the open with someone. Walk with a brother or a sister in Galatians 6.1. If any of you are entrapped by a sin, those of you who are spiritual, those of you who are strong in this area, for whatever reason, help them. And be careful that you're not tempted also. Third, sorry, this is last week's message. God requires those in Christ to put to death all coveting. That's right in the uh, 
middle of that list as well. We spent some time talking about it, but just that desire, that craving, and, and the danger in this one is that in America, we can flaunt this sin, and even in the church, and people won't necessarily see it as evil. Uh, but it is also a perversion because our hearts are not satisfied with Christ, but we are wanting something more, something more on earth, something that we think will satisfy us somehow more than God himself will be. And as Garland warns us, we can actually be consumed by our consuming ways. So last Sunday, we finished with three heart postures that I have reminded you of before and will remind you of, I'm sure, many times as well because I think they've been so helpful for me and I believe that they can be for you as well that affect how we obey and impact, impact our ability to obey. One, seek to increasingly discover and experience the pleasure of God. Just a reminder that I didn't give you last week. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him. Enjoy him. Now on earth and in heaven for all of eternity. Secondly, to increasingly realize the love of Christ as Paul put it in Ephesians, how wide it is, how high it is, how long it is, how deep it is. Milton Vincent, when the heart is fat with the love of Jesus, when you're totally enraptured with that, your eyes do not rove, nor do your fleshly lusts rule. And third, seek to increasingly behold the glory of Christ and behold the glory of the Lord. Uh, believing absolutely believing, and it's just good to really ask yourself, do you really believe that Jesus is superior in every way to any other possible thing here on earth? If you really believe it, that's what you go after, and your daily prayer is, God, show me more of that glory that I might be enraptured by it, and that it would color the way I look at everything here on earth. It used to bug me that the pastor, the previous preacher that I sat under his teaching for 17 years would review previous sermons for quite a bit at the beginning of each of his sermons. As you might notice, I do. Now I realize, on any given Sunday, there's totally different people. I mean, there's many the same, but many, many others who haven't heard the previous Sunday, so it's a good uh, way for them to hear that. Partly because most of us forget 99.9% .9 of what we heard the previous Sunday. And it's a way that I can squeeze in things that I didn't have time for last week. <laughs> All of that, let's work our way through these next two verses that in some ways seemingly aren't that significant. At least they're just short little lines, but actually have huge implications. Father, as we come to these two uh, thoughts that you put down here in Colossians 3, in between, put these sins to death and put these sins away from you. We pray again that you will help us. We ask you, help us to understand the significance of them. May they powerfully impact us personally and as a church. And then would you help us live rightly, wisely, fully, in light of these, for your glory's sake, we ask this. Amen. So verse 6, one intense reason. So 
God has all these commands, but plopped within them, plopped probably isn't a right word. He strategically had Paul write these in. These gave him these thoughts. But stuck in between these are short, pithy little thoughts that are intentional, that are either revelations about something, if you've never thought or heard this before, or necessary reminders. You might say it's a little bit like smelling salts. So he's waving under us here two smelling salts to emphasize from verse 5, the idolatry, the sexual filth, the sickening greed, and from verse 8 that we'll unpack more next week, the, the uh, malice, the, the, the evil speaking, the anger and wrath. All of these incur nothing less than the wrath of God. God is saying here, it's not genocide and, and massive sins that bring the wrath of God. It's all of these, and they equally contribute toward it. Recognize the sinfulness of these sins in God's eyes. Now, the wrath of God is one of the most doubted doctrines of God. We just haven't seen it happen, right? I mean got to go all the way back to the flood to really see it being played out the way it's ultimately going to come to at least get a concept or an idea of it and it's certainly one of the most misunderstood by non-christians but also sadly sometimes by believers but that does not make it any less real or true Hebrews 12, 28, which I don't have on the slide, debated whether to put it on, but I just, there's a short encapsulating of this thought, but it's set in a context in Hebrews 12 of you've come to Mount Zion, and then it describes all these beautiful things about coming to the kingdom of God and all that we're going to enjoy, and that finishes with Christ speaking his word over us. And then this verse Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then it has one more line. For our God is a consuming fire. It's not a way we think about him much, is it? Many of us. God's wrath is all over the Bible Lots of ways that he portrays it, depicts it, certainly describes much of it in gory detail in the book of Revelation. It's how he feels toward sin, how he'll ultimately punish it when his patience runs out, so to speak, and how he will ultimately wipe sin off the face of the new heaven and the new earth. In Ephesians, just a page or two or three away from Colossians here in the, what we might call the parallel passage because it's saying there, if you're sexually immoral and pure, you're seeing the same language as Colossians 3, covetous, that's idolatry. Now a double whammy. Number one, no one who just immerses themselves in that and doesn't die to those things has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. That's a pretty blunt statement in itself. But it isn't just that you're left out of heaven. The wrath of God, secondly, comes upon any and all sons and daughters of disobedience. Spurgeon reminds us that 
when men talk of a little hell or a little wrath, it is because they think they only have a little sin. And therefore, they only believe in a little Savior. It is a little together. But when you have a great sense of sin, you want a great Savior. And you feel that if you do not have him, a great Savior, you will fall into a great destruction and suffer a great punishment at the hands of a great God. Here's how Peter described it in his second letter in the closing section. It's the last part of his letter, but it gives us helpful explanation. This is a little lengthy, and the first part is more of a setup, but I think is helpful to what ultimately comes. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And now he adds a little caveat, knowing that, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days in 2023 with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they have been from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, and they overlook it by discrediting it, saying it didn't really happen. That the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by that means, that water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, save for eight people. Now he turns. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Certainly we Americans, let's do it now. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, giving yet one more day, one more hour for some to reach repentance but the day of the lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed and now a word of instruction for the church since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And if you turn over to Romans 2, verses 2 through 5, you'll see more of this discussion. You'll see the word wrath toward the very end of this passage. We know that the judgment of God, and we know because the Bible tells us and records for us that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. If you remember at the end of Romans 1 is about 20-some sins that people give themselves over to and heartily encourage others to, and it looks just like modern America. Two rhetorical questions. First of all, do you suppose, do you think in your little imagination, oh puny human, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Second rhetorical question. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you think those will triumph over his wrath in the end? 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant right now to lead you to repentance. And then a but. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. What a way to put it. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Charles Bridges, in his commentary on the book of Proverbs, talks about how fools will trade a cup of pleasure. You can think about any of these sins in, chapter, in verse 5 and verse 8. They'll trade a cup of pleasure, this momentary earthly thing now, for ultimately an ocean of wrath. God's perfect, powerful judgment will fall on all sin and all sinners. And every human, we're all sinful, all deserving of that wrath, will either, because of his faith in Christ, have had Jesus suffer God's wrath for him on the cross, or he or she will have to suffer the wrath of God themselves. There are no other options. None. All sins, Piper reminds us, will be punished, either on the cross for those who repent, or in hell for those who don't. So let's note in light of coming to the Lord's table in a few minutes, that these sins bring God's wrath and Christ's death when we trust in him, alleviate that wrath. Here's how Paul put this contrast in Romans 5, 9. We have now, in this life now, been justified by his blood. Hallelujah. But how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? the holy, sinless body and blood of Jesus Christ given on that cross for us is the only thing that can override the wrath of God. Hallelujah that it does. Hallelujah that it does. And then in light of chapter 3, verse 3 of Colossians, where it talked about us being hidden with Christ in God, Piper makes the note that the only safe place from the wrath of God is in God, in Christ, hidden in God. So the flesh deceives all of humanity, but it certainly can Christians as well, that these sins of sexual immorality, of idolatry, of coveting, of wrath and anger and filthy language, that these sins don't seem to have those serious of a consequence. Life still seems pretty good, in fact, when I'm indulging in these sins, I feel even more pleasure. But God wants us here to see sin for what it really is by telling us it will bring his wrath. And you either put these sins to death in you. You can't, you can't stop what the world is doing in indulging them, but you better stop your own by the help of God, by the grace of God. As Jesus put it so simply in Luke 13, repent or perish. Don't only think God's wrath is coming for the really bad people of this world. God's wrath is coming on everyone who does not believe and obey. And Jesus maybe made that most vividly clear in John 3, 36, when he said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not, and now you expect him to say, believe. But whoever does not obey the Son, because of his believing in the Son, shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. No one. No one. Certainly not you. Certainly not me. Can play games with God. Fool him in any way. Think that things won't be done justly and rightly in his judgment before us. We can't claim to be his and yet continue in our sin without any real repentance. So that's the sobering truth of that short little phrase in verse 6. Now God turns from something where he's showing us the future and what's coming, the ultimate effect, and brings it back to the present and really in looking at the past to call us to leave the past, verse 7, and that's all of the sinful indulging that our old flesh used to do. Leave that behind um, in order to do what he's going to call us to do in verse 8. His call here is don't continue in sins, even if they've been lifelong habits. Doesn't matter if you're 8 years old or if you're 80 years old. Don't go back, don't revert, don't regress. Or the way that Peter put it in, in uh, First Peter 2, 2 Peter 2 is don't be like a dog who returns to its vomit. Don't be like a pig who goes back to its mud sty. God has a brand new and vastly better and different way to live. So press forward in that. Being holy is, by definition, being cut and separated from sin increasingly separated or separated from increasing amounts of sin as we put it to death. And so this contrast of old life, new life is so stark in Romans 6. Let me take you there for just a couple of minutes and hear these thoughts. Now, these are the words right before Romans 6.23, which tell us that the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what it says leading up to that. Paul says to the Romans, Thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. In other words, God's righteous and holy ways are now the driving force of your life, where sin used to be. And a verse later, for just as you once presented or gave your members of, of your body over as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, and that leads to sanctification or increasing transformation of your life. And now he contrasts the two lifestyles this way. But what fruit, what lasting, truly satisfying result were you getting from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of these things is death or as he says in verse 23 the wages of these sins is death but now you have been set free from them and have become slaves of God but slaves of God in order to freely walk in his righteous ways and the fruit the result the effect 
that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Garrett Kell says, the gospel of Jesus does not just free us from hell someday. It frees us from sin today. We are not who we used to be, so we do not have to do what we used to do. One more place to take you, 1 Peter 4. Peter here writing, we read these first two verses last week. I'm going to carry that thought further this week. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that he did to put sin to death. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human earthly passions, but for the will of God. And now he taps on this same reasoning as Paul. For the time that is past, whatever lifespan you had before, Jesus came in and saved you in phenomenal ways. The time in the past suffices to do what the Gentiles or the rest of the world wants to do. Living in, and now you see some of the same sins as Colossians 3.5. With respect to this, they are surprised or shocked when they, you do not join them in that flood of debauchery and they malign you. But, God's but, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So the reminder for the Colossians and it's a reminder for us is whatever used to be in your life is to be gone, to be put away because now that you have Christ, now that you have all these infinitely superior blessings from him, why in the world would you ever want to go back? And Spurgeon in Spurgeon's powerful wordsmithy ways puts it this way. Christian, what hast thou to do with sin? Hath it not cost thee enough already? Burnt child, will thou play with the fire? What? When that has already been between the jaws of the lion, will you step a second time into his den? Hast thou not had enough of the old serpent? Did he not poison all thy veins once? And will thou play upon the whole of the asp a second time? Oh, be not so mad, so foolish. Does sin ever yield thee real pleasure? Didst thou find solid satisfaction in it? If so, go back to thine old drudgery and wear the chain again if it delight thee. But inasmuch as sin did ever give thee what it promised to, to bestow, but deluded thee with lies, be not a second time snared by the old fowler. Be free, and let the remembrance of thine ancient bondage forbid thee to enter the net again. And that's God's point, dropped here into the middle of these specific calls for repentance from specific sins. So let's, in closing, turn our thoughts to responding to what God has shown us in these two short, perhaps unnoticed verses before that I hope have been powerfully worked in you. If God has used his truth today, and I would speak to the people who are normally here and to anybody who is visiting in this context, and you are not assured in your heart, according to Scripture, that you will not face the wrath of God that is coming, then call today on the name of the Lord and be saved. Recognize what Christ has done in coming to earth to be one of us, to live perfectly where we could not and never commit one of these 
All of these sins were put to death by him in his own life. Suffering, dying ultimately, paying the ultimate price as the Lamb of God, as we'll think about at the Lord's table. Then rising three days later, ascending ultimately to God's right hand where he now intercedes for all who repent and believe in him on our behalf before God the Father. Jesus said it so pointedly in Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news, and the promise that the Apostle John is. If we say we have no sin, if we think we're okay, that if we think there's enough good works, if we think we haven't done anything that bad, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we come to Christ in faith and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pray the prayer of that tax collector that Jesus pointed out in Luke 18, whom Jesus said went home righteous. God be merciful to me, a sinner. You'll see more verses in your bulletin as well, calling you to seek the Lord, to call upon him while you can, to forsake your ways and return to the Lord and find his compassion. And if you confess and believe, he will save you. We would love to have that conversation with you and want you to know that's our greatest desire, that no one in this room, no one watching online, would ever personally experience the coming wrath of God. To those of us who are assured because of the scripture's promises and the gospel's promises, we will in a few moments receive and partake together the bread and the cup Reminding us again of Jesus' body and blood given in incredible love, grace, and mercy because of our faith and repentance. We should receive his wrath. We equally deserve that. Let's never disown that or minimize that. But because of what Christ has done, instead we are given, as John put it in John 1, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Stunning the change. Sinclair Ferguson reminded us, reminds us of the challenge of the Christian life. It's a perpetual roller coaster of discovering our sin and the remnants of our devotion to lesser gods. And that should lead us to a fresh seeking of Christ's pardon and power. And then, perhaps even in the same day, just hours later, or the next time that we come to a circumstance that reveals it, rediscovering that our idolatries run deeper into our being than we formerly suspected. And so we must seek Christ's grace more and more. Oh, how we need perseverance in the pursuit of godliness. Foreclosing things, none of which is brand new rocket science to any of us. They are familiar but important parts of the way that we grow in godliness. Number one, believe the gospel again in this process put the gospel before you and humble your sinful self before God and confess the many sins that you have not yet put to death as he is calling you to do I love this picture that Chad Bird gives uh, saw it this week in a devotional by him Christians are never weaned off the gospel never Jesus is our milk our soft food our solid food our every meal no matter where we are in growth as Christians. He alone is our meat and drink throughout our lives. As long as you are in this life, you will fall flat on your face again and again, 
when you try to live a life of obedience. And lying flat on your face, you will discover that you landed. Not on the hard ground, but on the crucified body of Jesus. Eye to eye with him. Face to face with your Savior. He will stand you up in his arms. He will clean you, wash you, forgive you, lead you onward to his table to feed you once more and celebrate. Psalm 32 is just one of many, many scripture passages that capture this, but just the need, the importance of acknowledging, owning our sin, recognizing it, asking God to show it to us, and coming before him to receive his forgiving grace upon that. And this verse ends with Selah, or Salah, which is that pause, ponder, think about this. Don't go over this quickly. So even at the Lord's table today, do this. Secondly, gratefully receive his suffering and death as the full payment for your failure. Trust his promise of forgiveness and rest in him. Chad Bird again. After listing a bunch of scenarios that can discourage us as failures before God, he says, he will search you out, find you, embrace you, kiss you, and shout to all the earth, this is my beloved son, this is my beautiful daughter, this is my child, my heir, the apple of my eye. With you I am well pleased. And he can say that because of us being in Christ, in his son. That is why Jesus came. Not to die for the righteous, but for those whose lives are full of one failure after another. For this is a love that never fails. He came to die for the clean, not for the clean, but for the dirty. For his blood washes away even the filthiest of stains. Hallelujah. Embedded in your soul. He came to search out not those who come running to him, but those who have fled from God, who hide in the darkness of their doubt and unbelief, to find you no matter where you are and to give you hope in the place of despair, faith instead of doubt. And in the end, it's not about how many times you've messed up, but how constant, unwavering is the Father's love for you in Jesus Christ. Third, repent. Don't stop with asking and receiving forgiveness, but in that process, may it also lead you to asking God for help, dependent on his power, to put these sins to death and to put them away from you. Reminders again that Jesus' generous forgiveness is to move us to grow in holiness. Just as Peter said, he shed that body to forgive us and for us to die completely to sin and live fully to righteousness. And Jesus to the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, go. And from now on, sin no more. As Luther reminded us in his first thesis of his 95, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed for the entire life of believers to be that of repentance. We honor Christ most, not simply by our own sheer willpower, changing a behavior, though there are some benefits in that. But we honor Christ most when we focus by faith fully on Christ abiding in him and together his power flowing through our faith truly squeeze the life out of sin after sin after sin.
Kelvin, and this is in the bulletin today as well. The supper, the Lord's table, bears special witness to the fact that our God helps us when we are, so to speak, halfway home. He seeks to move us further on so that we are always looking to him. And then last paragraph. And since we are fully persuaded of our weakness and frailty, since we do not have all that is required, let us ask God to strengthen us, to lead us forward, to increase our faith and our hope of the heavenly life. May we long for it with all our powers and may each strive and toil not in his own strength, but in the strength which God supplies, which even comes now through the bread and the cup. He will not fail. And fourth, and very briefly, again, go forward rejoicing in what Christ has done. Remember Nehemiah's, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It holds me up through incredible battles. Focusing on the body, the blood, the death, the resurrection of our Savior and all his other greatness.